welcome to the Dishcast post-hip surgery. I've hobbled up 45 steps or thereabouts here. It's a, it's, a, it's a hell of a long journey up to the podcast studio, but I'm incredibly proud we've done it on my cane. And I'm also incredibly excited to have with us a man whose Twitter feed right now is, I think, a must-read on Ukraine and Russia, a man called Sam Romani. Is Sam right, or do you want to be called Samuel? Uh, Sam is fine for this type of thing. <laughs> Sam Romani. He's just completed a DPhil at Oxford, which, which is what Oxford calls a PhD. We always attempt to make it slightly more difficult for outsiders to understand what is happening. And he's now a departmental tutor in the Department of Political Science at Oxford, also a member of the Royal United Service Institute in London. He's got a book coming out about Russia's policy towards Africa, which is a topic that I'd certainly never really thought about before. And also, he's working on a book that's going to come out later this year, both books by the OUP, Oxford University Press, on the current war in Ukraine, this horrifying thing that we're witnessing um, in real time. Sam, thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to be here. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm going to have to start with a big question. What is Russia? What does it mean? What does Russia mean? I mean, there are lots of countries in the world that we can understand in certain contexts. But Russia, I don't know, the more I've thought about it, the more I've observed it, I want to ask how Russians understand what Russia is, how Putin understands what Russia is. How, how would you answer that question? Well, that's a really uh, great question. I think at moments in times in Putin's two decades in power, he hasn't even had a clear idea of what Russia is. And certainly the Russian people haven't had a clear idea of what their country represents. So after the um, collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russians started looking back on the Soviet era and the imperial era before that as being defined by two things. One was a common set of ideologies that they were trying to push, whether that be conservatism, orthodoxy in the imperial era, or in the Soviet era, of course, uh, Marxist-Leninism and revolutionary socialism. And the second was some kind of a notion of great power status and superpower status, which involved having control over a particular sphere of influence in Eastern Europe and in Eurasia, as well as influence that would be able to be projected beyond its borders into global theaters. So those, that was how the Russians interpreted it. Then comes 1991. Then comes the collapse of the Soviet Union and the uh, transition from communism, the economic depression, the descent and collapse of law and order, the Chechen wars. And all of a sudden, Russia is without any kind of identity or any kind of uh, clear sense of itself. It's never really viewed itself as a nation state, as having to adapt to that. It's also lost its great power status. It's really just a gas station with nukes in the eyes of most Western policymakers. And it's lost a set, a set of ideologies or principles that's trying to advance in the world stage. So let's, 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 let me stop you right. Let sure. me just get that first thing. Yeah. Not Russia, not thinking of itself as a nation state. You know? right. this, I, again, these are very deep questions in a way, but they seem to me to be fundamental because that's fascinating. They, they've never really reconciled themselves to the idea of just one other little nation state. Right. right. In the way that the British, I speak, you know, that's where, where I'm from. It's where you are currently talking to me yeah. from. You know, they gave up an empire which was not an easy thing to do. I mean, I mean, they did it under duress, obviously. Right. But they were quite happy at some point to become Britain again, to become 
a nation state. Uh, similarly with France, they lost an empire, but they understand themselves as a nation state they can go back to. But this is not really how Russians understand Russia. Right, yeah, definitely. I just don't think that Russia really views itself as just the boundaries of the Russian Federation that were defined after 1991. Well, when uh, I know the quote is often repeated and often to uh, far too much is that the quote when Vladimir Putin described the Soviet Union's collapse as the greatest uh, geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. That is a view that's held not just by him and his inner circle, but by the uh, majority of Russians. I mean, head of this war, 62% of Russians agreed with the notion that the Russians and the Ukrainians are one people. So when Russia looks at Ruskimir, the Russian world, the Russian nation, it sees not just the borders of the Russian Federation, but also at the very least, Ukraine and Belarus, which are integral and contiguous to this, and more broadly, hegemony over a broader sphere of influence, which could stretch from the Baltic states to Central Asia. So they're still viewing themselves as an empire paired back. Whereas we kind of thought this was a communist model that became a capitalist model. So we thought we understood that. But from the point of view of Russians, it's also they're also a, a superpower that lost superpower status in a rather dramatic and humiliating way and returned to this concept in some ways of an eternal Russian empire that would somehow reconstitute itself. What I found particularly fascinating is how people who had been victims of the Soviet system, people who had been pummeled by this evil system of totalitarian control, turned around and were among the people who most wanted to reconstitute a kind of imperial authoritarian state. I'm thinking about some of the people like uh, Gomelev, uh, Gomelev, or however you pronounce his name, and Dugan, some of the intellectuals of the, of the new right, of what they called Novorossiya, because presumably national pride or a sense of pride in Russian civilization required them to see the collapse of the Soviet Union as a wound to Russian self-esteem. Is that, is that, is that correct? Uh, definitely. I think that when you're looking at how Russia interpreted the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, the phrase is often used even by advisors to Putin, like Sergei Karaganov, who I interviewed in Moscow a few years back, is Versailles syndrome. It's seen as very similar to what happened to Weimar Germany. And uh, basically the stripping away of uh, their economic potential and their military potential, allegedly, by this is what the conspiracy is, by the West. And it's linked to more broadly to nationalist conspiracies that this was part of a way of not only dismembering the Russian empire, but with the long-term goal of dismembering the Russian state and sealing its resources. And this is a view that's held quite broadly across the population of Russia. Even during periods when the Russians and the Americans seemed to be getting along, like when Bush and Putin were hobnobbing, or during the Obama era reset. In 1998 and 2014, more than 70% of Russians believed that the end goal of the United States and NATO was to not only uh, reduce Russia's uh, influence in the world and destroy its great power status, but also dismember it as a state. So that's something that's interesting to keep in mind, how enduring that is inside the public consciousness. And there was an article in a study by Robert Legvold in 2015, which actually documented this phenomenon over the course of time that I would recommend everybody reads. It was published in the National Interest at the time. And with respect to how the ideologues viewed this, I would be a little bit cautious about overestimating the exact influence of any particular individual, like Gopalev mm -hmm. or Dugan. When I was in Moscow, for example, I visited Moscow State University and I met with many of Dugan's colleagues, and they were very dismissive of the idea that Dugan had any really influence in the Kremlin or was hardly ever in the company of Putin. 
he did through my research, I noticed, have a close relationship with Putin's economic advisor, Sergei Glaziev, who interestingly, who's now been dismissed in 2019, but he interestingly was the founder of the Eurasian Customs Union, the Eurasian Economic Union, and it was an advocate of greater Eurasia within the Kremlin and the system. So that appears to be the linkage of relationship there. With respect to how the victims of totalitarianism were kind of now becoming the perpetrators of this new kind of new imperialism, that's a very interesting concept. But it's also important to keep in mind that many of the people who are were, were around Putin and helped and enable his rise to power and were influential in shaping these doctrines were those who deeply lamented the Gorbachev reforms. They lamented perestroika. They lamented the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they were supporters and sympathizers of the August 1991 coup that very nearly uh, restored the hardliners to power and uh, would have uh, toppled Gorbachev. So, and, and they were channeling those visions now into their current foreign policy and their current influence. So I would trace the current strain of new imperialism back to more the regret of those reforms and changes in the collapse of the totalitarian system rather than being victims of it because they were kind of ha pretty happy with that old system. Right. Many of them were. I'm just thinking yeah. particularly of dissidents right. in the Soviet Union. I mean, one thinks, for example, of a figure like Solzhenitsyn, who, yeah. whom, the, whom America has consistently misunderstood, whom we understood to be the great anti-communist who revealed the evils of the Soviet system in ways that very few other people have. But he was also a reactionary. Right. I mean, he also believed in Russian imperialism. He also despised the West, despised yeah. liberalism in a ways that I think in the American system, where the neocons and the, the, the paleocons are fighting, there's an absence of that understanding of, 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 of that, that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Solzhenitsyn's rhetoric criticizing NATO expansion or the U.S. wars in Kosovo or Iraq is almost exactly identical to those of uh, Yevgeny Primakov, who was the founder of multipolarity and was one of the ideological godfathers and influencers of Putin's current foreign policy, or anyone really within the Kremlin. And that is an interesting point, that liberals who may, or dissidents from the Soviet era, are not necessarily going to be rejecting neo-imperialism. And of course, Alexander Dugin, as you stated too, was from the Eugenicy group, who was an uh, avant-garde dissident group that was dabbling in in Satanism and even Nazism and other other sorts of things during the 1980s. And he became a hardline new imperialist. And even for a while, one could arguably say the same was happening towards Alexei Navalny, right? Alexei Navalny was famously was accused of making racial slurs against Georgians, even calling them rats. He was willing to not really uh, make, take drastic action in terms of the handover of Crimea back to Russia, even if he eventually came to admit that that seizure was wrong. Now he's taking a completely different tone. He's saying that this is a diversionary war because of Russia's economic difficulties, and that's why Russia's in Ukraine. But even for liberals like him, they were liberal nationalists. They were liberal nationalists who adhere to a, a sense of new imperialism abroad, but also were able to criticize the injustices of the political system internally, the authoritarianism, the electoral fraud, the corruption, the lack of economic diversification and progress. And I see that very much amongst members of the Russian uh, diplomatic service, ex-military veterans, as well as academics and younger liberals. When I've interviewed people in Russia, I've just spoken to them. They can be very critical and frustrated with the domestic situation. But then when you start moving the conversation towards Crimea or towards this kind of notion of Russian Dershavna, great power status and Russian greatness, they all seem to line up. So it's quite an interesting uh, phenomenon. That's what Putin's tapped into. He realizes that these kind of new imperial policies are a great way of uniting the public around something. Right, which also helps us understand that, that, his, that his strategy is not entirely crazy. 
that in terms of sustaining the legitimacy of his regime, this ideology of Russian greatness, as it were, making Russia great again, let's to, to use a quite crude analogy, will overcome the 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 qualms about anti-democratic rule in, in and illiberal detentions and the, 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 the complete assault really on private individual liberal thinking in, in Russia. And that's not a crazy thing for him to believe. It also means particularly that this war is probably more popular genuinely and not simply because of the propaganda being spewed, even though obviously there's an incredible amount of bullshit propaganda being spewed from Moscow right now. But nonetheless, there is a fertile... Russian support for the idea, for example, that Crimea, to give a simple example, is obviously Russian, always been Russian. Are there anybody, is there anybody in Russia who really thinks Crimea should be ceded back to Ukraine? Well, there are a handful of liberals who have dabbled in that idea. Some of them are expats like Khodorkovsky. Others are kind of like people on the liberal fringe of, of, of activist communities like the Mikhail Kasyanovs and others. But the uh, annexation of Crimea did drive Vladimir Putin's approval ratings according to the Levada Center, which is an independent surveying center, and was before they were designated as a foreign agent in 2017. So they actually were quite accurate and free from uh, political interference. They It drove its approval ratings up from around 59% to 89%, and it stayed at that level for more than two years later. So wow. this euphoria about Krimnash, bringing Crimea back into the Russian fold, and some of the things that were accompanying with it, I mean, the military modernization and the Syrian campaign and the, how they framed those successes certainly helped, as did the siege mentality around the sanctions. But it was the annexation of Crimea that most Russians would argue was probably the crowning achievement of Putin's leadership during the entire decade of the 2010s, and that's what some opinion surveys show. So definitely, that annexation was very widely supported. This war, however, it's a little harder to judge whether it will get that kind of long-term uh, patriotic rally. There appears to be a short-term patriotic rally now. It's weird that all the Russian polling agencies are choreographed to show Putin's approval rating within one point of 71%, including the independent ones. But there is uh, genuine support for this war. I mean, 50% of Russians did believe that Russia could invade militarily Ukraine if there was an imminent risk of NATO expansion. And that's not the only risk that they're being framed. They're being told that there's Nazis who are on their borders or NATO that's on their borders, and this is a war for national security. So I think that Putin probably has a majority support for this war. But longer term goals, like a longer term war of attrition that lasts like Chechnya, the first Chechen war for 15 months or Afghanistan and in the 80s, is probably much less popular, as is uh, a situation where Russia is protractedly isolated from the West. That would be less popular. And probably the least popular thing, based on the opinion surveys I've seen, is a long term occupation of Ukraine that's carried out through uh, constant uh, military forces and deployments. Only 36% of Russians supported that in the opinion surveys that were taken before the invasion. You mean they don't want to be permanently holding down an insurgency in Ukraine with their own yeah. military indefinitely? They, How do they square the notion that since Ukraine and Russia are one people, that Ukrainians are resisting? How is that? You know, where, how do they explain what seems to be an extraordinarily tenacious resistance to, to occupation yeah. from Ukraine? I mean, I mean, one of the a joke I made on Twitter, which went over everybody's heads, apparently, was was that was that Vladimir Putin has been more successful at nation building in a month than the United States was in Iraq and Afghanistan over decades. Uh, in as much as this kind of paradoxical reverse, he's kind of created or at least cemented Ukrainian nationalism in a way in which 
in which perhaps it didn't exist before. Well, Vladimir Putin has been great for cementing Ukrainian nationalism, and I absolutely agree with your joke. I think it's it was very well put. And yeah, I mean, I guess to the Russian public, the Russian state media outlets really chronically downplay the level of Ukrainian resistance that we're seeing. So, for example, in the 48 hours after the war, there are many uh, Russian newspapers, including ones that were pro-government, but not necessarily pure propaganda outlets, like Kommersant, that were arguing that Russia had gotten complete control of the skies, for example. And they have done in two days what the Americans, even with their overwhelming military power, took a month to do in Iraq. So they were, they're framing the situation as being very advantageous towards them. When the war is continuing and, and going on, they are also linking resistance to Western support. So to the movement of, of NATO forces there in America, providing military support and everything from uh, conventional weapons to bio, bio labs and chemical labs and nuclear systems. So they're attributing the resistance not to Ukrainian nationalism and Ukraine not wanting Russia to be there, but more because Ukraine's a proxy feeder in this bigger battle between America and Russia, and it's the Americans and the Europeans that are propping them up. So that's how they they get around these things internally. But absolutely, I mean, the level of Ukrainian resistance and also the level of ethnic Russian resistance and the very fact that the Russians are engaging in such vicious bombardments on parts of what they would call Novorossiya the um, cities like Mariupol, cities like Kharkiv, with so many Russian speakers and ethnic Russians, is really quite an, an eye-opener, and it, it really speaks to the uh, falseness of, of their narratives about these two people being one, if the Russians could have free information and see it. Let me ask you two controversial questions here. The, one of the arguments that Putin constantly makes in domestic propaganda is the denazification of Ukraine. Right. And there is in the Russian mind the sense of Ukraine as a bunch of Nazis, essentially. Now, obviously, this is partly because of the history in the Second World War, in which you, you, the West part of Ukraine was occupied by the Nazis and didn't seem to be seem to be quite psyched about the whole the whole the whole general Teutonic War on Jews, for example. It's also true, is it not, that there are paramilitary, genuinely neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine that are actually integrated into the Ukrainian military, Azov. Can you can you unpack that for, for us? I mean, how big a deal is this? How is this entirely a propaganda detour for Putin to describe this nonsense? Or is it or is there an element of truth to this too? It seems that Azov has not been invented and it is more integrated into the Russian military than I think most of us would be very comfortable with. Am I, what's, what's the sane view of, of, of the influence of Nazis, neo-Nazis in Ukraine's culture and government? So this is um, a very interesting uh, question. I mean, it's a bit hard to unpack, but what I would say is that certainly the Ukrainians from a PR perspective have not done themselves that the world of good, with all the uh, honoring of Stepan Bandera, obviously, with all of his uh, World War II and uh, Nazi connotations, or Poroshenko giving honorary Ukrainian citizenship to a Belarusian neo-Nazi in the year after the war, some of these things are are obviously cannon fodder for the Can Russian Can you just propaganda. unpack that again? Because you use names that I'm sure our, our listeners will not be aware of. Explain exactly what they did that was so dumb in terms of PR. So, yeah, basically um, rehabilitating uh, Stepan Bandera, right? who was given by Viktor Yushchenko the posthumous title of Hero of Ukraine. and Tell uh, us about him, because uh, this is people yeah, are not oh, yeah, really aware of who this he person is. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he basically was kind of involved in working with Nazi Germany after, uh, in 1941, when they invaded the Soviet Union, and he kind of tried to welcome the German forces into Lviv, 
and he is seen by some as a liberation hero in that regard, he liberated the yeah, Ukrainians from uh, Soviet rule. But in reality, he was trying to basically kind of create an Nazi proto-state in Ukraine and try to put the Ukrainians into the arms of the Nazis. And he was in lockstep with them, and he was a, in, a collaborator with them, and he was also a, a virulent anti-Semite. And part of his criticisms of Bolshevism was just this Jewish influence in the USSR. So he really uh, spoke to These are in the 40s. We're talking Paris. now 1941 to to when? Yeah. So 1941 was when he kind of was when the Soviet Germans invaded the Soviet Union. That was kind of the peak of his of his influence at his period of time. 1941, 1942 primarily was when he was getting involved in the collaboration at the peak of it. And the Ukrainian government awarded gave gave a posthumous award to this guy? Yeah, so for the uh, former president of Ukraine, uh, Viktor Yushchenko in 2010 when? gave in the 2010. award to the to him. And he was the Ukraine's real first pro-western president. So the first pro-Western president <laughs> celebrates a Nazi, which right. is not exactly wonderful PR. But also, what does that tell you about? But then again, you also see this country that has elected a Jewish president, right. Jewish vice president. That Zelensky is, I mean, one can't imagine a less likely force for neo-Nazism <laughs> than this Jewish yeah. comedian, essentially. Right. So how do we make sense of that? Is it just this historical legacy that just happens to be there? What, to what extent does Azov still operate? And how, what, is, what does Zelensky know about this particular element in his own armed forces? So after the uh, initial war in Ukraine, so when Crimea was surrendered bloodlessly, and uh, the Russians were making rapid advances in Donetsk and Luhansk, and there were concerns about movement into Donbass. It looked as if the uh, the SBU, which is the intelligence services of Ukraine, and the Ukrainian military were effectively kind of uh, almost uh, stabbing the country in the back, if you will, if you want to borrow that controversial expression, or kind of just like, you know, not really uh, resisting firmly enough. So these kind of ultra-nationalist Ukrainian nationalist battalions started propping up and forming to resist Russia and to use much more brutal tactics, including war crime, borderline war crime tactics, to resist the Russians. The largest was the Azov Battalion, and there were other smaller ones like the Idar Battalion as well. The Azov Battalion is the one that seems to have the most enduring influence, and it is continuing to feature in the in, in Mariupol. We're seeing it in uh, uh, Volnakovka. We're seeing it even, uh, we're seeing it act as a strong uh, resistance force. Not all of its members are neo-Nazis, at least according to some of their spokespeople. Maybe only 20% of them are, or maybe a bit more than that. But there certainly is a far-right militia militia element to it, and a sizable contingent, at the very least, of people who were incontrovertibly neo-Nazis. So these battalions were created for that purpose. And part of the reason why the, the Ukrainian state co-ops them instead of cracks down on them is because these are nationalists with a lot of arms and with a lot of potential combat uh, readiness and capability. So one, it would be a loss for the Ukrainian military. And two, if these battalions turn against the government precisely at a time when the Russians are invading and they're squabbling amongst people with guns inside Ukraine, you'll have a much bigger problem. So that's probably why Zelensky turns a, a blind eye to them. But actually, there's very little popular support inside Ukraine for this kind of extreme right. There were members uh, of right sector, which is a right, far right wing party at Euromaidan. But when it comes to the elections, they don't even make the uh, threshold for, for, for seat, seat earning, you know, less than 5%. And also, there was a recent poll that was conducted of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and their popularity. And th some of these anti-Semitic conspiracies were believed by 13% of Russians and just 5% of Ukrainians. 
So there's arguably more anti-Semitism and far-right nationalism and neo-Nazism inside Russia than there is inside Ukraine. And that should also be kept in mind, um, too, that this is a greatly exaggerated threat. And it's not a new exaggeration. The Russians delegitimized the uh, Hungarians who were supporting Imranagi in 1956, or the Czechs who were supporting Alexander Dubček in 68 as fascists as well. And, uh, and they attributed them to being fascists because they were trying to pull these countries away from the Soviet Union and towards Western Europe, ironically, like how the Nazi collaborators were trying to pull Ukraine away from the Soviet Union and towards Germany. So this is an old uh, narrative about anybody that they don't like or anybody who has a pro-Western orientation, labeling them as fascists and Nazis. And that's what uh, Putin is reprising now. has got resonance because it's something that Russians have heard for the better part of 60 years. Yeah, that's why I always found it strange when people started talking about the invasion of Ukraine as the the first time since the end of the Second World War that that the troops had crossed the border. I'm like, well, don't you remember Czechoslovakia? I mean, don't, don't you remember these previous when Russian tanks just rolled over um, and went into Eastern Europe? That was very similar activity. Of course, they were much they were they were in Eastern Europe. Now, let me take you and ask you another question here because this has also been a little controversial, which is, did NATO fuck this up? Did we, did we, did we, were we sort of autistic with respect, no offense to people on the spectrum, but were we a little clueless when it came to Russia after the Cold War? We had so many of these old hands telling us, don't push them. They're vulnerable. They've lost a lot. Let's, 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 let's be nice. Let's, let's don't push our luck. There were nervousness throughout Eastern Europe, obviously, but there was a question of what, how do we deal with this now? I heard the Chinese the other day, uh, I think the, one of the uh, officials said that they believe that NATO should have been disbanded along with the Warsaw Pact right. and that we'd be in a much better place uh, if that were the case, which one understands is, is... So, and I heard both arguments. I don't think they're necessarily contradictory, actually. I think uh, we could, this might have happened anyway, but we could still have fucked it up. But in other words, the emergence of a, a new nationalism, a new imperial nationalism, put it that way, because nationalism isn't quite right with Russia. How do you put NATO's performance or the West's performance in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union? Well, I think that NATO expansion, particularly when it got beyond the borders of just Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary, and started stretching uh, further into southeastern Europe, Romania, and Bulgaria, which is what, why the 1997 line for security guarantees keeps getting mentioned all the time and also into the Baltic states and into the direct territory of the Soviet Union exacerbated these uh, insecurities inside Russia. It exacerbated the fear that the West did not respect Russia as a great power, so they're infringing on the traditional sphere of influence. There, uh, and also, it gave Putin a pretext to be able to create a Western threat on Russia's borders that he could use to unite the country in a nationalistic way if the Russian economy started declining and the balance of high oil prices started eroding. He'd be able to distract people from socioeconomic issues and unite them around this kind of NATO bogeyman, this Western threat. So NATO expansion, probably uh, not by design, was not necessarily a flawed policy because NATO is an alliance. These countries meet the criteria for joining. It's their sovereign choice. They want to join. And that's perfectly legitimate. That's perfectly okay. But NATO expansion created insecurities in Russia and an atmosphere that Russia could exploit and, uh, and take advantage of. So NATO expansion did not cause Russian aggression. It's the corresponding changes inside Russia, authoritarian consolidation, declining economic performance on top of it, 
and this uh, superpower of nostalgia and this belief in the, 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 the countries like Ukraine and uh, the Baltics and Georgia are less than countries or artificial countries that also needed to be there. So without those other factors, NATO expansion would not have led to this. But the, they create a convenient pretext for those other factors to not just be kept inside Russia, but to be uh, a justification for the use of force. That's Which was it, precisely what George Kennan was worried about. Yeah. It, 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 it was not a crude argument. It was yeah. an argument that press these buttons and it will have an effect on the Russian psyche. And that Russian psyche may respond in ways that would be very counterproductive. On the other hand, you could say, well, for fuck's sake, look, given the way they're behaving now, surely it was a very smart thing to get us all into NATO before before this revanchism, as it were, would would return. Yeah, I think that absolutely. I think it's very likely that even if there was no NATO expansion at all, and particularly no NATO expansion to the borders of the former Soviet Union, those conservative voices, uh, those nostalgists for the 1991 coup and for uh, Russian great superpower status, would have probably uh, tried to engage in revisionist activities inside Belarus or Ukraine or maybe even the Baltic states. We were seeing that kind of rhetoric in the 1990s even through those so-called peacekeeping missions in Moldova, Transistria, Nagorno-Karabakh between Azerbaijan and Armenia, the contested land area, Georgia, Tajikistan, as well as the constant uh, warnings that if the Baltic states were to suppress uh, ethnic Russians, we could uh, go in and protect our, our, our brethren and our comrades. So the roots of Russian aggression and the rhetoric of that, and this kind of aggressive rhetoric predated NATO expansion into the post-Soviet space and was evident even in the early and mid-1990s. So it's very possible that we would have had seen exactly the same thing happening, but probably something much more expansive and much worse had NATO not expanded. Equally, right. NATO created a very easy and convenient pretext to justify a lot of these actions to the broader Russian public. So it's a it's a condition that's exacerbated this, but it's by no means a necessary precondition for Russian behavior. That's how I see it. That's a very nuanced and, in my mind, persuasive account of what happened, and it and it helps sort of get us past this "who lost Russia" kind of right. dumb argument in a way. None of us want. I don't. There wasn't. There wasn't, I mean, I think there is a certain level of Russophobia among some American elites, I have to say. Neo, the neoconservatives have right. this, a real passionate hatred of, of, of Russian culture and history. But let me go back to the something you mentioned with respect to this, which is the V word, Versailles. Right. Here you have a great power, humiliated essentially, and then have crippling in 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 the Versailles case, reparations. Now, in the it seems to me the thing that I, in my opinion, has been most sort of ignored or missed, is the fact that the West has done something unique, new, and quite astonishing in constructing the kind of sanctions regime that they have we have constructed, which is essentially, I would argue, a sort of economic nuclear bomb. That right. in a way that would previously be very difficult to imagine in a pre-globalized world, uh, the United States and the West have essentially condemned Russia to solitary confinement in some ways and permanent immiseration. Uh, this is going to have devastating impact on the Russian economy insofar as it, it's, it's there, right? It, and... My question is, not that I, I think these will have a huge effect, but could it possibly help Putin that this notion of the global Western powers coming together to punish Russia collectively 
through sanctions in a way that has never really been done to any major power before at this scale. Yeah, so when I was talking about Versailles Syndrome, absolutely, that refers to the combined element of the uh, ruble crash, which was uh, linked to uh, Western interference in uh, Russian economic policies. It was the West who brought in shock therapy. It's the West who brought in all those uh, radical transitions towards capitalism and enabled the oligarchs to take power and that kind of thing, and kept Boris Yeltsin in power in 96 so he could continue it. So Western interference in the, in the economy created this, and effectively it was a kind of economic warfare, as did the lack of consultation of Russia in the Kosovo crisis, when the Russians expressly uh, condemned the NATO bombings of Yugoslavia, but they were completely their concerns were completely dismissed, and uh, they felt that they were they were slighted. And Serbia was an Orthodox brother, and it was within their sphere of influence. They should have had those rights. That's what Versailles syndrome kind of meant to uh, advisors to Putin, like Sergei Karaganov, and that anger that came from that that Western interference in our pol political life, our economic life. And our disrespect for our influence over our own sphere of uh, sphere, territorial sphere, stimulated uh, revanchism. And will the sanctions do the same kind of thing as that? The sanctions will, in the short term, undoubtedly uh, benefit Putin's position. I think that uh, Putin has been able to successfully frame it to the domestic audience that this is a form of economic warfare that's being waged by the West, and it's part of a hybrid threat, really. So NATO and the West are, are advancing their security sphere on our borders, trying to dismember us, and now they're trying to destroy our economy in the process. But we as Russians are resilient. We remember the Great Patriotic War, all those World War II references again, and we stand strong. Whereas the people in the West are kind of uh, crying about uh, rising gas prices or rising food prices, and they're, uh, and they're not able to stomach this kind of uh, uh, moment of crisis. We have the strength and we have the resilience and we have the endurance to get through. And that for a while will keep Putin in check and keep him strong. Putin is also making some clever economic reforms, at least not, not necessarily good for the Russian economy, but clever for his own short-term position, which would be uh, increasing benefits, increasing pensions, finding a way around this kind of a sovereign debt through wants to prevent an imminent default, and also basically nationalizing or, or threatening to seize the assets of some Western companies to try to kind of create this uh, that we're fighting back kind of notion in terms of counter sanctions. And that right. will help him too in the short term. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that yeah. because earlier this week, uh, we were sort of told, uh-oh, Russia's going to default any day now. Yeah. And lo and behold, it didn't default. And why right. did it not default? Because it has kept a whole bunch of crap, a whole bunch of its own, uh, yeah. sorry, its own bunch of its wealth in its own currency that is that can't be cut off by the West. But still, a lot of it has been cut off, right? I mean, what, what proportion have they kept of their reserves? Yeah. So, how much we've been able to basically steal from them. Yeah, so of the foreign investments, about $630 billion that were being held from those foreign investments, about $300 billion are now in some state of freeze. So they obviously have a cash shortage when it comes to U.S. dollars. But Russia has been divesting from treasuries and its share in U.S. debt for years now. It also has been investing increasingly with the central bank moving into gold. Gold is 21% of the central bank's assets. That's more mm. than the amount of assets that are held in China, with the largest country, or France, the second largest country, 14 and 13%, respectively. So it's putting a lot into assets that are harder to be sanctioned and harder to be targeted. And also now they've got the lifeline of China providing them economic support, which does allow them to kind of uh, use the one use or use other, other, other ways around the, the default scenario in the future. So they're, they're, the short-term risk of default has moved. 
But in the longer run, obviously, it still remains a risk due to the, the amount of debt they have and the levels of asset freezing and the economic decline that's there. And the fact that the military spending is also increasing and social welfare spending is increasing at the same time. And that confluence, right? Excessive military spending, excessive welfare spending, lack of investment and lack of revenue coming in, as well as the, the general impact of, of sanctions on unemployment inside Russia could lead to much larger scale protests like we saw in 2018 over pensions, but something much bigger than that. And that's the long-term risk to Putin's position. So he's gotten a strong patriotic rally over this economic warfare narrative. He made some right decisions to keep his power base in the short term, but in the long run, he may be finding himself in quite a bad situation. What do you mean by long run? Like what exactly is, is the sort of time that you're thinking of? It really uh, it depends on whether this will unfold during the duration of his presidential term, which uh, is running until 2024. I'm thinking more along that side. And Putin was supposed to step down and hand over power to his successor, but then he amended the constitution so he could stay in and take power for much longer. So we're looking at, will this uh, drive him out of power then, or will those long-term plans of staying in power continue? That's the open question right now. So we're looking at the next two years. Are there any significant factions in the Russian elite that might at, at some point say enough? We, we, this, is, this is a long-term strat strategy of going absolutely nowhere. Or is there actually a, a sense that, for example, if, if, if the Western, and by West, I mean, I'm also including Japan and I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm including the, all the countries that have come together, but what? interests me is is the notion that this could actually provoke Russia, along with China, to create a kind of alternative global system that would rival the West, that would that somehow make them both less vulnerable to Western economic pressure. And that we could be facilitating a shift in which we actually, this is this kind of sanction that we're, sanctions we're imposing on Russia are a kind of one-off thing. And they, this may not be repeatable in the future, and they may actually develop resources to be able to sustain themselves indefinitely. Well, definitely, that is a significant risk. And obviously, if you look at Russian media reports today, and Russian, even some Russian official statements, they're warning China that you will be next, right? What you're seeing happen to Russia will happen to you next. I mean, I don't think the Chinese necessarily buy that. But that is a narrative that's justifying and uh, creating a good groundwork for their solidarity. You're seeing not just China help out Russia, but you're also seeing India also help out Russia with a possible rupee to ruble payment mechanism that they've been discussing over the past several weeks. Again, no specifics. The the, the talk about Russia and China circumventing SWIFT predates this, this war and the sanctions. When Wang Yi and Lavrov met last year, they were already talking about these kind of measures. And mm -hmm. the Russians have been preparing for an eventual expulsion from SWIFT dating back to Crimea. If you listen to one of Putin's economic advisors, Alexei Kudrin, who was talking about a British and European-led uh, swift expulsion that would lead to a 5% decline in GDP in the short term, and what do we do after? So the Russians have been planning this for a long time. They've been talking to the Chinese about it for uh, a long time as well, and the Russians have got cooperation coming from India, and maybe even some other countries that are wary about their situation, smaller regional powers. Like I'm thinking countries like Pakistan, countries like Iran, countries like Turkey, countries like... And, and these countries could come together and find a way... To, to bypass Western sanctions in the future through probably propping up and strengthening the yuan as an alternative currency. That's, that, 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 that is a risk that, that could happen. It could be, I mean, de-dollarization could come from a concept of a multipolar world order or a symbolic concept into something that's a little bit more 
of an actual geoeconomic reality. That is a big concern. And the other thing that we should be looking at too is what does this mean for mechanisms such as crypto? I mean, the Russian finance ministry will be all on board with using crypto en masse. The Russian central bank has not dragging their feet. If that dispute gets resolved and the Russians start using crypto in more innovative ways like digital rubles and other countries like this start acceding to that too, we'll see an even faster uh, challenge to American economic hegemony, not necessarily a challenge to their hegemony, but their challenge of, to their ability to enforce that hegemony in a punitive way. And that's what right. the concern is. It seems to me that there are diminishing returns on a strategy of sanctions in this way. What do you make of our alleged client states in the Middle East? I'm thinking like UAE or Israel, for example, who are refusing to sanction Russia. Why is Israel sucking up to Putin? Well, Israel's relationship with Russia is a very complicated one. And Uh obviously, there's a domestic component to it, right? Because of the large number of Russian Jews and Russian expatriates inside Israel. There's also the close relationships between many members of the Israeli right and uh, Vladimir Putin and his inner circle, which date back now over two decades. So mm. we're seeing the figures like, uh, not necessarily Bennett with those kind of warm relationships, but Netanyahu and his coterie uh, within Likud and others having those kind of person-to-person relationships to streamline that. And finally, there's the concern about Syria, obviously, where the Russians uh, are working with the Iranians, and there's a concern that if the Israelis... Uh, attack Russia too much, the uh, Russians could enable Assad or the Iranians to start firing uh, missiles onto their territory. So they're worried about that. That may be more of an exaggerated threat, given Israel's retaliatory capabilities, but it's something that they're worried about and it's something that they certainly think about in their calculations. So that was, those would be some of the reasons why Israel is accommodating. But Israel is making a stronger stance on Ukraine than it ever did in Crimea. It's condemned the invasion of the UNGA. It's offering to mediate. It's accepting uh, refugees. It's providing humanitarian assistance. Is not moving with military assistance, but it's doing, or sanctions, but it's doing a lot of other things. And I suspect as time goes on, it will move a little closer to Western policy. The UAE, for example, is a whole different case. They're viewing this as a sign that, okay, the Houthis from Yemen fired drones on our territory. The Americans are not doing enough to defend us. The Americans are not even selling us, uh, are playing hardball on some of the terms about the F-35. And they're, and they're also starting to criticize some of our activities in the region particularly with regards to Libya. They're also imposing a Iran nuclear deal, which is going to pose an, a threat to our security. So the Americans are not really looking out for us. That's the concern. So we need to start looking much more seriously towards a multipolar order and towards uh, keeping our relationships and our bridges with non-Western powers, such as Russia and China. So the UAE's pivot towards Russia on this crisis is, is symptomatic of something a lot more strategic and a lot larger, whereas Israel, it's a lot more personal and tactical considerations. So we should not view those responses as, 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 as similar, even if they look like they're going in the same direction. Interesting. Thank you for that context. It's now, how do we understand, I noticed this week, I think t- today, uh, we're, talking, we're, we're talking on Tuesday, that the general who is currently decimating Mariupol Right. And leveling it, essentially, is the same general that was operating in Syria. Right. Now, why exactly explain within Putin's worldview, within the worldview of Russian nationalism, Russian empire, what this Syrian uh, intervention has accomplished? What was its purpose and what has it achieved? It seems to me that it's been actually a relative success for Putin. So... Yeah, 
explain explain how Putin saw the Syrian situation. Is it, of course, you know, there's a certain element in which neoclans and liberal internationalists are going to say, well, they're dictators and they support dictators and we're Democrats and we support democracies and stuff. But obviously it's a more interesting and complicated matter than that. What was Putin's goals in aligning himself so uh, strongly with Assad and also engaging in this kind of brutal, murderous, just morally despicable crushing of civilian life? Well, initially the Russian alignment with Assad was quite controversial within the Russian uh, foreign policy establishment, especially after the Hula massacre in 2012, which uh, alerted everybody to just how vile Assad was and how uh, much uh, associating with them so closely would be bad for Russia's reputation. But as time went on, Russia saw a geopolitical opportunity. One, it saw Syria as a potential uh, foothold to show that it returned as a great power to the Middle East. And it believed that if it could succeed militarily inside Syria, it would be able to not only sell its arms and equipment to countries across the region and across the world, but also show that it was an alternative power or a counterweight, at least a partial counterweight, to American hegemony. So it may not be a, a power that could replace the U.S. as a security guarantor inside the region, but a power alongside China that could challenge American influence in the long term and could also act as a troubleshooter for authoritarian regimes in crisis and also as a potential alternative diplomat. So that's why they always combine diplomacy with military action, sometimes at exactly the same time, like they're doing in Ukraine. They did the same thing in Syria. So that was what the aim was from a Russian uh, international point of view. Domestically, Russia saw a threat that was analogous and easily to sell to its own territory. So they equated to their own public, the um, Syrian rebels, with, uh, with Islamic extremism. And Islamic extremism was associated with Chechen separatism. So they were able to create a convincing narrative and a pretext that these terrorists, if we don't kill them now, they will launch attacks on our soil. So when I, I was in Moscow, actually, when the intervention began in Syria, and that was very much what the narrative was. It was almost like a narrative of preemptive war. You got to take out the ISIS insurgents in Syria, or they'll come onto our territory. So that's kind of you what mean, it was. So it was we have to fight them there, or, or we're going to have a lot of interest to Russia. So the, so the argument was we have to fight yeah. them there. Because otherwise we'll have to fight them here, which is yeah. sort of, which is exactly the rationale that the United States used in 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 intervening in Iran and in Iraq and yeah, uh, exactly. and Afghanistan as well. Yeah. Putin is the biggest fan of the Bush Doctrine, right? It seems like it. Yeah. Well, well, yes. There are some ironies here. There are also some historical ironies that that we are currently rightly obviously appalled by civilian casualties in syria but they right. i mean sorry in in ukraine but they do pale in yeah. comparison to the civilian casualties that the united states was ultimately responsible for in iraq yeah. and we we certainly are not, not close to the 100,000 civilian deaths that we saw under america's staggeringly incompetent and pointless war in iraq um to what extent is the legacy of Iraq and Afghanistan has 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 made it uh, has given Putin and the Chinese to some extent a kind of level of moral standing and of credibility in the world that they might otherwise not have had? Well, I think it certainly allowed the Russians to be able to sell this kind of intervention to the people in the global south a lot easier. So particularly in areas like, like Africa, for example, and I've written a book on this and I've said, studied this quite closely. The notion that Russia was never a colonial power in Africa, 
like the way the French and the British and other Europeans were, is one check mark that they have in their favor. The other is that the Russians are kind of seen as this kind of counterweight or alternative to American unilateralism, American disrespect for state sovereignty, and American, well, reckless interventions. So a lot of people inside Africa see what we're, what Russia's doing as a show of strength and a show that Russia's standing up to the American empire and to American hegemony by, uh, even if it's breaking the rules and even if it's carrying it out in a way that they might not necessarily line up with. They see and they get solidarity out of that. So that experience of like reckless American uh, military interventions abroad and American aggressiveness and Russia uh, being a counterweight and a pushback to that is very good for Russia's image inside the global south. And also by proxy, China is, 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 is linking itself to that too. And it's good for Chinese, uh, the China's so-called peaceful rise, their development, the development, the development-based model, and uh, the Boston Road and other uh, somewhat hegemonic activities that China is trying to pursue abroad. They seem less pernicious in that context. That's why China is backing this up too. Right, and also tell me, and India too has a similar perspective. What about South America? I mean, how does South America? as part of the global south, if we think of them as that way, how are they reacting to the combination of American overreach in the 2000s and 2010s and now Russian intervention? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the American uh, overreach uh, during the Bush administration alienated a lot of countries, uh, particularly on the left inside Latin America. So at the time, Brazil's Lula da Silva, uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, uh, Castro in Cuba, uh, Nicaragua, the, all those countries got alienated and there were deeper popular sentiments that stretched across the whole region. And now in the context of the, of the war in Ukraine, a lot of these countries are deciding to remain on the fence. So allies like of Russia, or at least countries that Russia would assume would be in their column, like Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela, were willing to go along with the Donetsk and Luhansk recognition, but not necessarily go along in terms of uh, voting with Russia in support in the UNGA. But they're sympathetic to the fact that this was caused by NATO and this was caused by America and Russia's responding to a threat, but they don't want to link themselves to all the excesses of it. Maybe the way they would have linked themselves to those excesses in Crimea or Syria. So some, Russia is struggling with some of its core partners inside Latin America to get their actual support. It's probably alienating countries in the longer term, like Brazil, aside from Bolsonaro, Argentina, and now maybe even Mexico, which didn't sanction Russia, but now is joining up with France in a UN resolution to uh, claim that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is what caused the humanitarian crisis there. So Russia is a little bit less successful in Latin America than it's been in other areas of the global south or the, the Gulf monarchies or Africa or other places in terms of uh, settling its line. That's at least what I see initially. One question I would have with this notion of Russia reasserting itself as a great power or trying to reassert itself as a great power, whether that be in the Middle East, Eastern Europe, or with the Chechens, is that want to say come on you just you don't have the resources to be a great power you are you are massively overextended and in fact compared to the chinese for example you're really not you're really not a global threat to the united states and when i see and witness the really astonishing incompetence of the russian military currently and it's it, what is a kind of embarrassing brutal yeah. attempted botched invasion of a country you begin to think that some of this stuff is entirely in their heads, you know, that in fact they don't have the goods. They don't have the economic resources. They don't have the 
the economy. They don't have the human resources in their own society yeah. to generate the wealth enough to, to, to project power in the way that they seem to want to be. Now, to some extent, you could say, well, maybe they can bluff their way past this, or maybe this will work in the short term. But isn't there some point at which we have to say, well, come off it, Putin? You, you're just not up to it? Or is there ability, for example, to use chemical, nuclear, biological weapons and their demonstrated willingness to do so outside of their own country, part of what makes the Russian threat credible? Well, absolutely. And Russia is not a, a strategic threat in the context of the way China is. And grouping Russia and China together is this kind of joint uh, dual containment adversary strategy, which has been a part of American policy for the better part of a decade, but really popularized by the Trump administration's uh, reorientation of security away from asymmetric threats like terrorism and towards great power competition, gives Russia too much credit and inf risks inflating the Russian threat. In my book, for example, on Russia and Africa, I have the decision as to whether it's just an annoying spoiler or whether it is a resurgent great power. I was cutting somewhere in the middle, and I was saying it's a virtual great power. It's got the appearances of it, right? It's got the ability to build uh, relationships with a variety of states across the continent in, in the African context or globally. It's got nuclear weapons. It's got like this uh, kind of a global reach, UN Security Council, veto, a bunch of things that make it look like great power. But in practice, it doesn't have the material resources to really project with the kind of great powerness that it appears to show. So it's, it's, a, it's a, more of an image, it's more of a facade than an actual reality. And that's what we're exactly seeing play out in the context of Ukraine. We're seeing the military struggle with logistical issues, supply issues, frostbite on soldiers, not having the equipment to fight the cold in, Ukraine, in the Ukrainian winter was the latest story today that I think encapsulates so much of it. And this is after a sweeping military modernization that was heavily invested in after the 2008 Georgian war. And the Russians are finding themselves making the exact same mistakes that they made there in Georgia and in Chechnya. So it is a sign of Russia's uh, material weakness. Their economy is smaller than South Korea, Canada, or California. So economically, they don't have the sustenance even before the sanctions. And now they're geopolitically largely isolated, which makes it harder for them to present themselves as an alternative diplomatic power or an honest broker or mediator in crises like they were trying to do in the past. Uh, from everywhere like Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, etc. So the diplomatic foundations of their power have collapsed because of this war. Economically, they're in serious trouble, and their military is not what it looks like. So they're very much a virtual great power as bordering on a regional power and a spoiler, in my view. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that comment that Obama made about Russia being a, a, a sort of third-rate regional power. He, he dismissed it as a sort of, not something we need to be worried about, really. Yeah. So he kind of, which was kind of, in a, in a way, something almost designed to humiliate Putin. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, it's a bit the way that Obama actually treated Trump in a yeah. weird way, if one remembers the yeah. White House correspondent dinner, when Obama simply kind of flipped Trump off with a kind of dismissive, what a joke this person yeah. even thinks he's even con considered a feasible or and the same with Putin, where he's 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 talking about as some sort of fourth-rate regional power that we don't really have to deal with, and he's he's not really as if as if Obama's personality and arrogance actually really made things worse. They kind of it kind of gave people like Trump and Putin this burning desire for revenge, 
this 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 terrible sense of humiliation they want to somehow express and i also get this feeling and this is also true with most reactionary movements in a way and i want to get at your understanding of this is that it's definitely also a theme is it not of these reactionaries in russia and that that the West is essentially decadent, degenerate. I mean, the fact that Putin, in a serious sort of argument about foreign policy, mocks people seeking gender freedoms, the obsession with this, the reactionary right, with gays and and trans people and any sort of muddling of the sexual binary in any way, there's a lot of cultural resentment and fear of the West that, by the way, I think that plenty of people in the West are doing everything they can to make worse by, by, by actually pirouetting in the most extreme ways in, in, in terms of countercultural sexual politics. To what extent is that, is that motivating and, and, and an important part of the support for Russia, for Putin internally, that he's, he's, he's actually also fighting against Western decadence and degeneracy? Well, I think that that is a big part of what Putin's trying to uh, put forward, because Putin is really trying to unite uh, the Russian people around a set of values. Because I said at the very beginning of this podcast, right, that there was no uh, sense of identity after the loss of ideology and the loss of great power in us. And Putin was trying to unite people around a common sense of principles. One of them is illiberalism, which is explained by Putin's consistent emphasis on counter-revolution and the repression of protests at home and abroad. So the color revolutions, Ukraine, Euromaidan, Syria, even Georgia, and now uh, the Ukraine crisis today are all framed in those terms. The second is conservatism, which is basically promoting this notion of traditional values, the alignment between Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church, the crackdown on anti-LGBT rights and gay and trans rights and, and more broadly, uh, both at home and supporting and abetting regimes that do that abroad. So that is an integral part of Russia's desire to remake the uh, their identity under Putin. And also it's a, a clash between, yeah, Western decadence and Western weakness and uh, Russian resilience and Russian strength. It all plays into that. And that's kind of what, what we're seeing play out in the current crisis and the propaganda around it as well. How do you think Putin interpreted or understands the move of the American right, parts, significant parts of the American right intellectually, to support him on these cultural questions, to, to, to idolize Viktor Orban, to lionize Putin as, as Trump consistently did, essentially, even though you could argue that his administration didn't really do much to suck up to Russia, but they, he definitely rhetorically did. And, and many people, I mean, there were, you could do polling in America to find that Republican voters, for example, preferred Putin to Biden or would rather have the Russians. And you've also had in, in the United States too, this weird point at which the Democratic Party has become obsessed with Russia as the great enemy within. And he's, he sounds a bit like the Republican Party of the 50s in terms of Russia. Um, how much of this is Putin aware of? How much of how much of it is is part of his calculation? Does he think that America is actually divided, and and he he's sort of cultural conservatism and general let's get things done. Let's I'm our model of the great leader pushing people around is a better one than your chaotic democracy. And he saw that in Trump's election there was actually an appetite for that kind of rule in America itself. Did this embolden him? 
Well, I think that definitely the alignment would probably come as a surprise to him even if there were some common socially conservative values, just simply because of the Republican Party's longstanding hawkishness on the Russia question, even as recently as a decade ago, as well as some of the members of his rank and file in Congress and Senate still today, and the uh, response towards the Soviet threat. So it would have suddenly come as a welcome surprise that there would be some greater accommodation of Russia over there. But also, it's uh, engendered a degree of unpredictability in American policy. Russia now really acknowledges that the United States does not necessarily view Russia as a national security threat. It views Russia as a political tool and as a political weapon and as a form and really is they're starting to really see that kind of partisanship surrounding it. And that's what some people have cleverly warned against. I mean, Fiona Hill, for example, has when she was talking to us at Oxford in, in, in roundtables and speeches as well as in some of her interviews and some of other things, I've always warned that we should always be focusing on Russia as it pertains to national security and not necessarily towards making it a, a threat that's, that's something that's a tool that's being used in a partisan way. So when the Russians started realizing that the, this could be used as, as a partisan tool, Russian disinformation kicked into high gear. So they started targeting uh, people on the right, to everybody who were from anti-vaxxers, QAnon supporters, even some members of Trump's base with their disinformation, their narratives to build up support for those narratives at home. They were also able to use some of the extreme rhetorical excesses of some of the Democrats about Russia as proof that there's a Western kind of uh, economic uh, and uh, political war that's being waged against them. That particularly becomes easier to justify when Biden is president because he's a Democratic president and these are the people around him who are doing this. So Russia has used it to divide American society and also to create a bogeyman in the siege mentality at home that uh, supports uh, the Putin regime. So it's less necessarily the Republicans tilting towards Putin or the and the Democrats tilting away, but more the fact that Russia has become a partisan issue that Russia has really been able to exploit and capitalize on. And on the other side of the poll that you were saying, there was also a recent poll that showed that more Americans, more Republicans, Putin is better than Biden, but also more Democrats view Putin is better than Trump in the same poll. So this is a, a partisan issue uh, on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, and that presumably, and it's also happened in, in the UK around Brexit, of right. course, where that's also been a... I mean, I honestly, I talk to relatively sane, not terribly extreme Democratic friends of mine, and they present this portrait of America under siege from Russia, that, 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 that Russia stole the last election and gave it to Trump, that Russia fomented Brexit, that they really have internalized the notion that Russia has, is the source of all our our problems. This is on the left I'm talking about. Yeah. And that's obviously in terms of formulating coherent national security strategy, that's not a that's not a great thing for the United States or for the United Kingdom. And it I also think it's it gives Russia far too much credit. I mean I I, I don't buy the notion that Trump was president solely because of Russian intervention. I think that's completely no. bonkers. And but does that mean in fact that Ukraine in some ways this brutal, hideous just unspeakable intervention in terms of its sheer murderousness and barbarism has definitely shut a lot of those people up temporarily, at least, even though our, our friend Tucker Carlson um, is still fulminating night after night on actual Russian propaganda points like this bioweapons bullshit in Ukraine. Yeah. If, I mean, that is, well, he's, he's, he's at this point let me let me one word for contemptible is is the word for that. Not that there shouldn't be exploration of arguments left and right. I've tried to do that here, 
and try to understand Putin. But the notion that, that, that one can support this foul activity just seems to me to be beyond the pale. In other words, that that period may be coming to an end, that, 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 that bipartisanship may be about to revive itself, unless, of course, Trump shows up again. Yeah. Well, we're seeing, uh, yeah, even Trump uh, in his erratic way kind of try to walk back a little bit of some of the pro-Russian uh, statements and try to like kind of show that he's still on the side of Ukraine, he's still on the side of the of the mainstream. And he's obviously not. He would no, love to see Ukraine yeah, destroyed by Russia. Yeah, but he's uh, he's talking about it. Yeah, in a different way. And also, just to add, like, uh, yeah, generally there's a bipartisan consensus within the Congress, right? Except for a few stragglers like Marjorie Taylor Greene and a few others on the far right of the spectrum who don't want to acknowledge the uh, the Russian threat. M m most of the Republicans and Democrats are in lockstep about key issues like sanctions or pushing towards an oil embargo on Russia or arming Ukraine or or do all any of these uh, battle debates. And the debates are really on how and what and what are the best policies to do that, not whether we should be doing that for the most part. So that is an encouraging sign. There is a new sense of unity that is coming out of this Russian intervention. But I think that overplaying and exaggerating the Russian threat can be almost as dangerous as underplaying and, and kind of uh, accommodating Putin's actions because it allows Russia to use disinformation as a wedge to divide Western society. I don't think the disinformation is as effective enough to influence the results of an election like the U.S. or the Brexit referendum. It's been pretty scattershot and it's been pretty much uh, reliant on kind of appealing to both the far left and the far right. In some ways, it's got some of the same chaos that we're seeing in their military operations in Ukraine happening in the cybersphere and the cyberspace. But it does allow for that division and those wedges to be created, to be exacerbated if they're already there. It can't create wedges, but it can make them worse. And it can also lead to the perception inside Russia that, oh, a sizable chunk of the American political system who are now holding power are attacking us and we've got to defend ourselves. And that right of self-defense could include even invading other countries like they've done in Ukraine. So it enables Russian aggression and also divides us internally. And it's not really healthy to either downplay the threat or exaggerate the threat. And that's why we've got to really have a rational, national security-focused view of Russia, like the way we maybe are viewing China for the most part and other regional, regional powers and not treat Russia in this exceptional kind of uh, very emotional way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the people running Congress are older than me and they grew up in the Cold War in ways that you didn't. I mean, how old are you, Sam? I'm 28. 28. Jesus Lord. You're 28. Um, so you really are. You don't you don't remember the Cold War. No. Yeah, born after really? it. Uh, uh, but there's a plenty of those old farts in the Congress who are fixated on Russia in the way that I mean, like McCain was. I mean, if, I yeah. mean, honestly, McCain just hated Russia. Just hated that there was something completely irrational about his loathing of the Russians and his almost disappointment. I mean, talk about his, his real disappointment the Cold War ended simply because he couldn't hate them, keep hating them and working against them as furiously. I'm just, I'm, this is a little digression yeah. on, on the idiocies of McCain. Fiona Hill is going to be on the show next week. So we will oh, be able okay. to challenge that Geordie uh, lady on her own views of the whole topic. But in general, I'm, I'm obviously with you and her in as much as the important thing is to stay calm and cool and to look at what our interests are. Let's looking forward a little bit. So here we are. The Russians are basically a, a, a little bit marooned. I mean, they, 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 they're running out of their plan A is sort of over. The economic sanctions haven't quite hit yet, but they will soon have a huge effect right. in Russia itself. What happens from here on out? 
Well, I think uh, that there's several scenarios that could unfold. I mean, the first scenario is that um, the battle lines uh, continue to remain frozen. What we see is a larger attritional war, and Vladimir Putin resorts to more extreme tactics. So he's already used a thermobaric bomb. He's already bombed a chemical facility, at least with shelling, in Sumy in western Ukraine, which creates an easy pretext for the use of chemical weapons. That leads to chemical weapons use and potentially even biological weapons use if similar facilities are bombed inside Ukraine and uh, more aggressive siege tactics and hypersonic weapons and missile systems, more remote power projection, breaks some of these stalemates and leads to the capture of, um, of Kiev and the regime change happening before Ukraine gets the kind of air defense systems or jets or other equipment that it desperately needs. So even though the Ukrainian resistance is very strong and it's holding firm, these kind of aggressive tactics tip it over the edge. That's one scenario that's possible. Another scenario, which I think is now more likely than, than this, for the first two weeks of the war, I would have said this is the most likely. Now I'd be leaning towards this one, is that Putin starts to realize that regime change outright is not likely to happen. And he's not likely to achieve a full victory in a capture of Kiev, or even if he does, install Viktor Medvedchuk, like his, who's the godfather, he's the godfather of his daughter, so one of those cronies in power for a long period of time. So he decides to declare victory and leave in some way. And that means negotiating with Zelensky on some kind of security guarantees about neutral, Ukrainian neutrality and referenda in some of the pro-Russian states, state lists that they've been creating. And then he frames his success to his own public. That's what I'm seeing as the more likely scenario now, simply because the military outcomes are just uh, too hard to achieve. And he might try to use that withdrawal afterward as a carrot to keep his non-Western partners on board and keep their investments inside Russia and encourage maybe some disunion within the EU about easing some of the sanctions that were imposed. And the third scenario is that this whole thing kind of just degenerates into an absolute uh, internal disaster. There's either a palace internally coup, there's a popular revolution much bigger than what we saw in 1993 with the constitutional crisis or in Blutnaya Square after the electoral fraud in 2012, or the pension reform protests that I witnessed in Russia in 2018. And that mixture of kind of internal chaos a disastrous military situation just causes uh, Putin to kind of retreat and maybe sets the stage for a change in power on or before 2024. That's what I see as the least likely scenario at this point. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm I'm concerned about the first one because it, it, there is a natural tendency of the West not to want to engage in a potentially escalatory conflict that could lead to World War III, as it were, or the right. use of nuclear weapons or the unthinkable. And the capacity for a country like Russia with long-range missiles, and I, I'm not a military expert, but it seems quite possible that if you have no concern for human life, if you have right. no humanitarian principles at all, you can simply essentially blitzkrieg these people. You can do to Ukraine what the Nazis did to, to Coventry or what the British did to Dresden, which is this terrifying and horrifying war of mass murder that you can continue sort of pretty much ad infinitum if 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 they don't have this sufficient defensive air capacity or indeed military victories why wouldn't putin given what we know about him be totally fine with just murdering thousands and thousands of ukrainians i think that's certainly possible we've seen him already do that with leveling of grozny and what followed in chechnya right we saw it happen again in syria we're seeing it happen now in the streets of Mariupol and in, uh, increasingly in other cities like Kharkiv and Odessa and now even uh, Kiev itself. So that's certainly an option. It's certainly a possibility. The question is, 
regardless of what he's been throwing at the Ukrainians so far, whether it be a more precise missiles, or even less precise missiles that are designed at killing civilians and just disabling infrastructure regardless of cost, and the amount of uh, ground reinforcements that he's uh, about to bring in from Chechnya, Syria, other divisions of the Russian military, it just hasn't been enough to really break the stalemate. And the question is, will he be able to, even with these kind of scorched earth tactics, achieve the regime change he wants, or will other factors start catching up with them, like a debt default, like a much more severe economic crisis that causes people, him to have to force to be looked in, look internally, or just information about the number of casualties and they, that the Russians are suffering, uh, reaching the Russian people, causing uh, some kind of dissent and disorder. So that is the, the risk. And if the West, even if it doesn't provide the kind of massive lethal assistance that would be required to overturn or roll back Russia's territorial expansion does provide some things that stall it, whether it be air defense systems, whether it be down the line jets. This the the risk of Putin's economic and political house of cards, if it will collapsing before the military success can be achieved, increases, and that might cause him to pair back. And to preempt that outcome, or if he sees that risk of that outcome happening, he might go and approach diplomacy in a slightly different way than he has been so far. And that's why I was saying that the second scenario was somewhat more likely than the first. But the first and the second are still much more likely than the chaotic scenario that sees Putin collapse in shame, which was my third. Yes. Who is he most afraid of in his own elite? Who is he worried about? I think as an autocrat, he's most afraid of the Russian people. But aside from that, he's most afraid of, I think, some of the members who are closest to him inside the uh, security establishment, right? The people who have been loyal to him up until now but do have ideological ambitions or, or powerful ambitions of their own, like the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, who has not only been trying to fashion himself as a potential uh, valuable defense minister and as the leader of the military in this campaign, but also as a diplomat. He's participated in the Syrian negotiations. Public opinion polls show that after Vladimir Putin, he's the second most trusted person inside Russia, and many people would view him as a potential president. And Shoigu, if you look at his face just when uh, Putin was kind of talking about the nuclear button being on alert, that says it all. Shoigu is a lot more pragmatic. And Many of our listeners and readers will not be aware of what you're saying. There, his face, there, there was some scene at which you could see him Well, there's a video of him looking said. incredibly stone-faced, and it went viral on Twitter after this happened. And people were talking about it. Because I just where, like, where, in what context was he stone-faced? So Putin was putting the nuclear button on high alert, and he was just sitting there like going like this is uh, way too much. But the point is, like uh, he you look is like a, Tony Fauci at a Trump yeah. press conference. Was that yeah, yeah. Like it was just a a bit too much. And like uh, and Gerasimov too was like his uh, associate in, in the military was the point of contact with the Americans in Syria. So some of these people are a little in the security establishment are a little more moderate than what Putin is trying to advance. And they realize, okay, if this leads to the economic destruction of the country and this leads to uh, a revolution or something that will throw us all out. It might be better to kind of take care of Putin first and and try to rescue the country and try to show that we were different than uh, risk that kind of apocalyptic scenario. So defection from some of those is probably where it's the most likely threat coming from. People like a Shoigu uh, or like people are, are around him or even a very hyper ambitious chief of staff, Anton Vino, who has backed this war, but he's a young bureaucrat who's moved up the system exponentially. That kind of person could pose a threat. The liberals, unfortunately, like the Alexei Kudrin's, the economic advisor I mentioned earlier, who predicted the swift sanctions, those kind of people are unlikely to take uh, take power. So the best case scenario of Putin falls is you have a more pragmatic uh, leader who's still committed to the same kind of new imperial policies, 
or an absolute hardliner like a Nikolai Patrushev, a national security advisor, or somebody like aligned with some of the more hardline elements of the Duma, who makes Russia's foreign policy even more aggressive and even more belligerent and potentially drags us into a, a nuclear war, or World War III, or the invasion of NATO countries, or things that Putin so far hasn't even tried to contemplate. I met a couple of young Polish uh, dudes here, yeah. and they actually asked me, do you think it's safe for us to go back to Poland right now? I saw that the little midget Medvedev, I, I could never pronounce that bloody man's name, but the, the little midget that was, that was Putin's prime minister for a while, he came out with some weird diatribe about Poland. I always thought of him as, as a relatively anodyne figure, but he seemed to be fro foaming at the mouth about Poland, Medvedev. That's right, right, Medvedev. Yeah. Dmitry Medvedev, yeah, he I mean he was after all the architect of the well, at least one of the main involved ball players in the Obama era reset. Yeah. But he also was the architect of the Georgian War in two thousand and eight. So he's had both aggressive near imperial side to him, as well as a more pragmatic anti Western side. And now, obviously, with his marginalization from politics, because he was the singular target of Navalny and the corruption allegations, he, he is uh, trying to get back into the political mainstream in, uh, in Russia and be a more involved player. And how can he do that? By towing the line as much as Putin is or even going beyond him. So that, that explains his uh, letter on Ukraine. That explains his vicious letter about Poland recently. And now today he did a very similar shorter statement about Japan. It had very similar kind of racist tropes and very similar kind of like calling them like little samurai or kind of standing up with America's help to, towards Russia and a warning that, you know, they'll never renegotiate World War II in the peace treaty. So his bellicosity is driven, I think, by self-interest and a desire to get back into the fold. And it's a part of his split-screen personality. He put on a liberal face for the West, but a very hardline face internally. And that's what we're seeing that him happening today. I don't think we should be that worried about an intentional Russian invasion of Poland at this time. But Russia did strike a missile 10 kilometers away from the Polish border. They struck the Arab of Arfkash. Arms cash are advancing on Lviv, which is a Ukrainian city right near the Polish border, where the refugees are coming into Poland. So the risk of an accident, the risk of Russia, with how given how incompetent this military campaign has done, accidentally firing a missile into Polish territory, is possible and, and killing Polish people. And what, what does NATO do next? We've already seen an errant Russian missile on the first day of the war target and blow up a Turkish ship. It didn't kill anybody, but it's the kind of accident that could happen and we should be on high alert for. Exit question. How do you rate Joe Biden's handling of all of this over the last couple of months? Do you think that the, I'll, I'll, I'll leave a very open-ended question. How do you, how would you rate, what grade would you give Biden in his handling of this so far? So initially I was uh, a bit uh, concerned by the uh, American response because uh, they were clearly talking about that this invasion was imminent and they were very confident about the the fact that it was coming and it was over here but they and, and they they were kind of first of all maybe forestalling some of the potential diplomatic avenues to 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 deal with putin by threatening sanctions by threatening personal sanctions on vladimir putin by making such bold uh, rhetorical statements that were really more aimed at a domestic audience than not i kind of felt that they were almost trying to corner putin into a situation where he might be aggressive or kind of cutting off some of the diplomatic avenues through aggressive rhetoric that could have maybe delayed or given us time to adapt to this crisis or at least given Ukraine more preparedness in the event of the crisis coming. So I think that Biden's initial pre-war response to the crisis was probably like, you know, a B minus C because it was all over the place. 
He was engaging in bellicose rhetoric. The Americans did not seem to have the policies or the approaches in line to help Ukraine in the event of a war, and it was there. Since the war has started, I would rate his policies a bit better. I would say, like, you know, it's more of a, I mean, a BEB plus even, because he has managed to marshal the Western alliance in an effective way to unite around the need for sanctions. He's taken some decisive steps, like the movement of towards an oil embargo on Russia, which I think is a positive thing. And in terms of targeting individuals and banks and then just showing that kind of transatlantic solidarity, which is useful leadership at this time, it seems as if the initial indicators suggest that his talk with Xi Jinping has not been followed by China supplying arms to Russia yet. So maybe the Chinese were never going to, but that was that was a decent thing. And also there obviously are some areas where I'm frustrated. I mean, I'm a bit frustrated by the fact that Biden is seems to be a little too cowed or a little too scared of Putin potentially risking the nuclear card at this time or potentially tiptoeing around him a little bit with the movement of, of Polish five jets coming in. I don't think that MIG jets are enough of a, uh, a catalyst, catalyst belly for Russia to really risk World War III over because they're old Soviet equipment. They may not do little more than just kind of give the Ukrainians a bit of parity in the skies. So I think you can be a little more aggressive in terms of sanctioning moves that could challenge Russia in the military space. But all in all, I think his handling of the war itself was better than his handling of the of the escalation and the brinkmanship that we saw in the two months before. My concern, and tell me if I was crazy about this, my concern about solidly predicting a total invasion of the country would have made anything that less than that a bit of a humiliation for Putin. In other words, that that we kind of goaded him into it. That's a great point. I mean, there, there's been an unprecedented amount of uh, open source uh, data that originates now from classified intelligence, right? There's been that the boundary between classified intelligence about an adversary's activities and uh, what's entering the public information space has never been this blurred. And the Ukrainians are very upset about all the public statements that are coming through about how, how we're going to give S-300s to us, to them, or do this. Just give the equipment. Don't talk about it. Don't make all these kind of pronouncements because it gives the, the enemy a chance to attack. It gives them a chance to respond. And it might be used as a pretext for a future escalation. So the Americans are still making that same mistake of talking too much, sometimes not delivering, and then creating pretexts and justifications and encouragement for Russian response because of all this tough talk. So I think that all those predictions of an invasion of Ukraine were unnecessary, especially because... Were unnecessary, the, uh, is what you're saying. Pre- yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was my feeling too. And yet yeah. so much of the press yeah, yeah. lauded it as some sort of brilliant stroke of genius. I, 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 my eyebrows were, were, were I think, yeah. permanently raised. It's also quite clear, reading the media in, in America, just how, I don't want to sound like Glenn or Mark Tracy or others, but boy, do they know how to get onto a jingoistic patriotic script pretty quickly. And we've had, I don't know, a coverage of this that does, does, does feel a little propagandistic to me. Not in the sense that we shouldn't be rightly outraged and horrified and all the rest yeah. of it, but that there's... I don't know. If I if I hear another person who supported the Iraq war with bells on, who 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 is couldn't be more eager to get into a big fight with Putin, I don't know. Part of me is just like, Jesus Lord, did anybody learn anything from from these kind of absolute certainties and these these this this u.s aggression so i'm a little downcast by the by some of the ways in which this has been responded to over here yeah i think that to some extent i mean there's rightful righteous and moral outrage about the civilian casualties inside ukraine about they 
the, the nature of Russian aggression. In some ways, I think it would be better for America's image in the global south, if, even if there was 5% of this attention that was given towards what's been happening in Syria or Yemen or Ethiopia or Afghanistan or, or many other crises and conflicts, which don't seem to be treated anywhere near combined in like less than 5% of what we're seeing here. So that's one aspect of the media's coverage and even the responses and rhetoric of politicians that should be worked on if we are trying to uh, win the soft power war with this kind of Sino-Russian-Indian anti-hegemonic axis that's starting to form over this uh, conflict, at least in terms of narratives. And the other thing is, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we should be kind of a little bit more clear-eyed in how we view Russia, not just as a political tool, but also in terms of national security. And it is galling to see the advocates of past interventions come out like this. I mean, just seeing, well, uh, even people like John Bolton on RT today kind of defending the, the hawkish uh, position and all his prior wars and how, and how this one is so radically different from anything that he's argued in terms of preemption was a bit galling in particular. Oh, I'm glad I missed that. Yeah. Um, that would have well, that not been great for my yeah. blood pressure. I'm going to wind up now, Sam, but tell me, because I forgot to ask you really, like, how did you get into into all this? Like, you're, how, tell me, where, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Yeah. So I'm from Toronto, Canada originally. I did my undergraduate at uh, McGill. I just did a you know, general undergrad, just basically focusing on neopolitical science, history, international relations. I was mostly interested in my first couple of years in China and the Middle East. But then I got into reading about, you know, but I always been interested in reading about Soviet history, Cold War history, as a kind of a pastime or like a, and Russian literature and things like that. Just, you know, as like a pastime or a part-time thing. And then I went to um, LSE and I kind of was there, there for on an exchange. I did a lot of in-depth research on Russia, Russian politics, the color revolutions, the post-Soviet space and developments. I just got kind of really quite fascinated by this and how Putin as a character was being misunderstood in the West, being depicted either as this kind of Bismarck strategic mastermind or this kind of like a boneheaded thug and with really no nuance in between. And also how everybody was rushing towards, I try to understand the drivers of China and the Middle East, but there was such a dramatic fall off of Russian expertise after the end of the Cold War. So I decided that I would kind of take a year to study Russia and maybe just kind of write something on it and develop it because it was something I was interested in. So what started as a one-year master's at Oxford became a two-year MPhil, and then it became a, a doctorate, and now it's becoming the subject of my first two books, because this question of what motivates Putin and what's changed in Russia internally to drive its new anti-Western conduct and military intervention conduct both created new case studies every, almost every year of my, of my studies, but also is a question that was so profoundly misunderstood by the West and so clearly important that it felt like it deserved that kind of attention. Now, by taking six trips to Russia and two trips to Ukraine, I also spent a lot of time in the region, and it kind of just uh, reinforced my passion and my interest in this as an area of, uh, of expertise and as a subject matter. That's fascinating to know. I can't really believe that you're 28 years old, but I honestly, I've learned a lot talking to you today. I'm so grateful for the depth of your knowledge and the fairness with which you presented these these facts and these analyses. And... Again, I recommend people follow your Twitter feed. I also ask you a final question. If you were to recommend to the readers and listeners of yeah. the Dishcast two books to read that would help them better understand where Putin is coming from, like uh, history books or analysis that you think is, is, is the, that we may not have come across anything that you think would be really helpful, 
in terms of understanding the current moment, apart from, of course, your, your, your dissertation, which must be essential reading for everyone, but apart from that. Yeah, well, I've a couple of books that I think really get into uh, Putin as a personality and like uh, who he is, if you want to understand him, is The uh, Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin by uh, Masha Gessen. It is a little dated, it's from 2012, but it really tells you about the core and it speaks to the heart of what would uh, be the policy that we see happen with him today. Another one that I think tells you a lot about the antecedents towards his rise of power and who he is with regards to the elite dynamics, the post-1991 coup plotters and all those things that I told you about was Karen Dewisha's Putin's kleptocracy, who owns Russia. That really talks about the relationship between business and the state and how Putin rose to power in a, in a very effective way. So understanding the Putin question and who he is, I would kind of recommend some of those books if you're more interested in. Now, the last one, what was the author? Yeah, yeah, I uh, Karen DeWisha. She's recently. Karen DeWatt? Unfortunately, but she was, uh, yeah, she was somebody I, I spoke to during my research. Karen DeWatt? Uh, uh, I want to get the last name right. Karen DeWisha. D-A-W-I-S-H-A? DeWisha. DeWisha, yeah. And if you want to understand, like, you know, the how we got to the current uh, crisis in Ukraine, a good book about the first intervention was Everyone Loses, The Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia by Samuel Sharap and uh, Timothy Colton, who's a professor at Harvard. So those are I good just, books, I think, to start off with. I'm reading this this little book that really kind of fascinated me. It's by Charles Clover, Black Wind, White Snow, The Rise of Russia's New Nationalism. It's really about... Gibalev and Dugin, and have you heard of him? Is that is that Blackwind White Snow? Yeah, I've actually read that book. Oh, yeah, maybe because they just don't pay that much attention to these ideologies. But I'll give them right. Look. Well, I'm fascinated yeah. by these ideologies because I'm fascinated by the rise of illiberalism everywhere. Yeah, and and I don't think you can understand the rise of Russian nationalism and Russian illiberalism without also understanding what's going on in the right. West. Well, he's just he's. He just got really into these crazy ass reactionaries. And I think once you, and they are kind of intoxicating in a way, as well, like the far right in America, there are some interesting thinkers there, even yeah. though they're uh, somewhat dangerous, <laughs> to put it mildly. But Sam, so grateful. Thank you so much for helping us understand this question more deeply. To all of you out there, Dishcast, Fans, we are coming back with Fiona Hill next week. We're going to really try and understand this foreign policy crisis, um, this moment in world history, from as many different perspectives as we can, and with as much granularity as we can get to. So I'm most grateful, Sam, for you helping us to do that. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was a really interesting uh, discussion here. Yeah, I'm trying to talk about things that we're not getting to hear in the MSM or or sort of in, in, in context where we don't have this amount of time right. to actually get down to the brass tacks. Yeah. And because we're also so newsy right now, you it's know. very hard to get any perspective, either historically or even thinking in the future, looking back as to what this will mean. Yeah, because what, either I'm talking to like closed group audience of academics and policymakers who already know about this stuff, or I'm on TV interviews and talking for like five minutes, right, to a general public. And it's really hard to distill stuff like this. This was really good yeah. in that way. Great. I agree with you. And yeah. we're going to try and do more of it. Thank you, Sam. I may come back to you over the months and God help the people of Ukraine. And, and yeah. I think I'll end on that. Uh, say a prayer for those people who are currently in this unbelievably awful situation. Definitely. And yeah. think of them, understand the plight they're in, and uh, pray for them. 
And with that, we'll see you all next week on the Dishcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.